been just crazy as such right now. We're like, we just don't have time for this. So we decided to build a house. And uh, this is our second home we built. It was just a little spec home, and it's great enough for the two of us. And so we built this house. And right behind us is the, the neighborhood is continuing to expand. And so I've been watching this. And for the last several months, for about six months or so, they started building behind us. And for about six months, all they did was dirt work. All you saw were these big machines coming in, and they were grading, and they were digging. They built this big retention pond, and there were days that I would walk back there, and I didn't see that they were doing anything, although they seemed to be working all day. I couldn't tell what they were doing. You know, they had to build in uh, pipes for the gas and for the water and for the drainage and all this. And so about six or eight months, all they did was just seem like move dirt around back there. And then finally they got to the place where they started putting lot signs up there and selling the lots. And then I've been watching them. People would buy the lots, and then they would go in, and they would, and I'm not a construction guy, so any construction guys tell me I'm probably way off on this, but they would, like, dig footers, and then I would notice they would come back, and then the next day they would pour concrete in there, and then a few days later they would put these forms up, because these, most of these houses are on slabs, and then they would put all the, the uh, water and sewage in there, and that was kind of fun to watch what they would do, and you'd have, like, this spider web of stuff. And then a few days later, they'd come back and they would pour the slab. And then they would start building the house. Now, what was amazing was, really, when you looked at how long it took to get the land all ready and to get the foundation built was really a a large amount of time compared to how short a time it took them to actually put the house up. Once they would get the foundation built, I mean, it was just like boom, 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 boom. You'd watch the house go up in about a week. They'd have that thing framed. And it's amazing to watch how fast they've been building those houses, and they just constantly have crews coming in. They were working on New Year's Day. It's just crazy. And so you watch these houses just springing up all over the place right behind us, but it took them a long time to get the foundations ready, to get the ground ready. And so I know some of us be like, let's just move on, let's just move on, but we're really, we got to build foundation. And so before Christmas, we really worked on what we call the vision statement of the church. And so we came together November 22nd after we took surveys of the community and of our church. And and you as a church came up with five vision statements and the leadership team kind of distilled it back down into one proposed vision statement, which we're going to be voting on here in a few weeks. So if you have questions or concerns, talk to the uh, leadership team about that. And and certainly they want to hear those uh, concerns you have. And this was the proposed statement that we're operating in. And it basically said this, that our vision is to be, this is a proposed statement, our vision is to be a diverse family united in impacting all people for Christ. Now you have to understand a vision statement is not a theological statement, it's not a doctrinal statement, it's just a picture of what we're saying we believe God would have for this church. That in the future, we want to be a church that's diverse. In other words, we want to be multicultural. We want to be multi-generational. We want to be a family that even though we're different in skin color and backgrounds and education and all those things, that we are, see ourselves as a family. We want to be a church that's united, that we're all moving in the same direction towards one goal. And that our goal is to impact all people. And the the focus of this is Christ. We want to impact all people for Christ. Now, that's our church proposed vision statement. Let me just ask you this while we're at the beginning of 2016. What's your vision statement this year? Have you taken a few moments to sit down and think, what do I want to see in my life this time next year? 
Laura and I, yesterday afternoon, I asked her, I said, so tell me what are you wanting to see in 2016 for us as a family and for you as an individual? We talked about that uh, yesterday afternoon. I ask you right now, what, what do you want to see? Maybe you say, I really want to grow closer to Christ this year. Great. How are you going to do that? What, you, you might say, I want to grow in my knowledge of Christ. Great. How are you going to do that? Um, daily Bible reading, maybe, or reading plan, or make sure that you attend services and Bible studies. How, how do you plan to grow in your knowledge of Christ? How do you plan to become more like Christ in 2016? And so while it's important that a church have a vision of what we want to become, it's also important that we have a personal vision of what we want to see for ourselves. So that's part of the foundation. But what I want to focus on the next few weeks is the second part of our foundation of a church. So we kind of have the what. Let's talk about the how. And that is what's called a mission statement. Okay? And a mission statement is not a vision statement. It just basically says this is what we do. This is who we do it for, and this is how we do it. Okay? This is what we do, this is who we do it for, and this is how we do it. Because let me tell you something. A vision, a dream, without a plan, is just a dream. It really is. You can dream about what you want to see, but if you don't have a plan, guess what? It's just a dream. So it's important that we have a vision, but it's also important that we know what our mission is. And you say, boy, this just sounds business-like. No, I really think Jesus knew what his mission was. For example, Jesus said to Pilate in John 18, when he's standing before Pilate, he says, for this reason I came into this world to testify to the truth. That was his mission. My mission is to testify to the truth. Jesus' vision was I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. His vision was, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all people to myself. But to have that happen, his mission was, I've come to testify to the truth. The truth that we need a Savior. The truth that we're sinners. And so that was Jesus' mission. He came to testify to the truth. So, before Jesus, after he was crucified, buried, and resurrected, before he ascended, he gathered all of his disciples, not just the 11 that were left. You know, Judas had killed himself. Not just the 11 that were left, but all other people. There were a lot of other people that walked around with Jesus a lot. A lot of women traveled with him. Other people like Matthias and others traveled with Jesus all the time. So he, he got all these people together. They came together, and he gave them a mission. And I really believe that the mission of the church is the same mission for all of us. The vision for churches are different because we're all in different areas. But the mission is the same for all the churches. And if you, you know where it's at, it's Matthew 28, 19. So if, uh, if you've grown up in the Baptist church, you've definitely memorized this scripture. Matthew 28, 19. If you have your Bibles, just turn there for just a second. And we're going to just start unpacking this today. We are not going to get all the way through it by any means. So today's message is really kind of a foundational message for the next few weeks. So just hang with me today because we've got a lot of unpacking to do. So here's what Jesus said. So he gets all of his disciples together. He's getting ready to, to ascend to heaven. Matthew 28, 19. And he says this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's all I want to talk about today. Okay? That's all we're going to talk about. Because we're going to unpack this. Jesus said, go make disciples. There's a lot of questions here we need to answer. Why in the world is a disciple? How do we make disciples? 
What does a disciple look like? How do you know when you've been successful at making disciples? When does making disciples happen? See, it's easy to memorize these verses and foul them off like that without ever really unpacking them. So that's what we're going to do uh, today. So my goal for us as a church over the next few weeks is to really help us unpack a a mission for the church so that we can say this is our vision and this is our mission. This is how we carry out the vision. This is the mission of the church. And the mission that Jesus gave us was to go make disciples. So let's start with that word. What in the world is a disciple? Well, the Greek word is metetes, which basically means follower. That's what it means. In the Bible, you have all sorts of people referred to having disciples. For example, John the Baptist. He was said to have disciples. You read about the disciples of Moses. In other words, they were people who followed the law of Moses. In the scriptures, you read about the disciples of the Pharisees. In other words, they were people who followed the Pharisees. So in in the New Testament, you read about disciples of John the Baptist, of John, uh, of Moses, and of the Pharisees, as well as the disciples of Jesus. So let me give you a starter definition, and we're going to keep unpacking this. I just want to start today with this basic beginning. A disciple starts as a self-attached follower of Christ. Now let me unpack that for a minute. A disciple is a person who starts, discipleship begins as a self-attached follower of Christ. Now, Matthew 28 is the mission of the church. And a lot of churches kind of phrase this in different ways. This is my favorite mission statement. I'm not saying this has to be the one of Warren, but I like this one because I think, and as you see in the next few weeks as we really unpack this thing, I think this mission statement really has teeth to it. And this is my favorite one. To turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. I like that mission statement. The mission of the church is to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. So Jesus' command here is go and make followers of me. Go make disciples. Now, let's unpack that some more. What does he mean when he say, go make disciples? Unfortunately, some people in church history have thought that means go tell people, convert to Christ or die. There is unfortunate parts of church history where people thought that that's the way you spread Christianity was by the sword. Okay, let me ask you something. If somebody put a gun to your head and said, now tell me you love me or I'm going to shoot you. And you said, oh, I love you. Do you think that person was really saying they loved him because they loved him? Because they just didn't want to get shot, right? You know, this is really cool. When God created humanity, he could have made us so that we had to love him with no choice. God could have created us without a human free will, and we wouldn't have known the difference. We would have all been walking around, oh, I love God, I love God. And we wouldn't have known the difference. But let me ask you, is forced love, love, Everybody's asleep. Is forced love love? No. When you force somebody to love you, that's not love. And God knew that. So when he created us, he knew that to have true, genuine love, he had to give us free will. And he also knew that by giving us free will, that was going to cost him his son. Powerful. 
And so when Jesus tells us to go make disciples, I don't think he's talking about going to people and saying, you better believe in Jesus or I'm going to hit you in the face. I don't think that's what he's talking about. So what does he mean when he tells you and I to go make disciples? Well, I always like to look at Jesus. And what did he do? And we're not going to go into the passage right now, but I talked about this a few weeks ago. If you remember in, in the first chapter of John, Jesus is walking by and John the Baptist looks at him and says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist had a few disciples. One of them was Andrew and the other was uh, John. And so they're standing there and they're seeing John the Baptist point out Jesus. Then the next day, Jesus walks by, and again, he says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist, two of his disciples, followers, said, Let's go check this guy out. And so they start following Jesus. And remember the passage, Jesus looks back, and he says, What are you looking for? And they say, Master, we, we want to be with you. And he says, Come and see. The way Jesus made disciples was people were curious about him. As you look in Scripture, you'll see things like the fact that the Bible tells us that people follow Jesus because of his miracles. They were just curious. What's he going to do next? Jesus follow, people follow Jesus because they were curious about his teachings. What's he going to say? This man doesn't teach like everybody else. So people follow Jesus out of curiosity. So here's the thing. I believe that when Jesus says, go and make disciples, he's not talking about forcing people to believe. He's talking about this. Live your life in such a way that as people see you, they're curious about me. They want to know your Savior. Who are you talking about as you're going? The way you and I make disciples is we live our lives in such a way that people see Christ in us. You say, what does that look like? Well, let me just real quickly unpack a passage. Galatians 5.22. When you let Christ live through you, you have the fruit of the Spirit. The first one is love. Let's see, how are we told to love? Love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Told to love our neighbor as ourselves. Even if our neighbor is a Muslim, yes. Even if our neighbor is Hindu, yes. Even if our neighbor is gay, yes. We're told to love our enemies. We're told to pray for those who persecute you. Unfortunately, when we did our surveys, a lot of people said that the thing they don't like about the church is it's too judgmental. I'm afraid, unfortunately, we become known as a very judgmental people instead of a loving people. How do you combat love? So one of the ways you and I make disciples love in the face of hate we love in the face of persecution. People, how can they fight against that? What do you say in the face of love? You see it all the time in Jesus when he's on the cross. Why does he pray? Father, forgive them. Paul says not only the fruit of the Spirit is love, but it's also joy. In other words, there's that joy despite the outward circumstances. There's that peace, that inner sense that God's sovereign and just, and he, will be, he is in control. So there's a peace despite what's going on around us. Long-suffering, patiently putting up with people that irritate you. Some of you are laughing. 
because there's people you're thinking about. So, you know, if we patiently can put up with people that irritate us, then that's kind of attractive. How does that guy do that? How does that girl do that? Kindness, again, responding to other people's needs, gentleness, reaching out to our goodness, reaching out to others even if they don't deserve it. Faithfulness, being reliable, being trustworthy. Gentleness, again, being humble and considerate of other people. Even when anger is appropriate, you focus the anger in the right direction. It's not a sin to be angry, by the way. Jesus got angry. It's just focused in the right direction. Gentleness and self-control. The way you and I make disciples is people see Christ in us and they say, hmm, I'm curious about your God, your Christ. I'm interested in learning more about him. Now, what I'm getting ready to say next, some of y'all may be like, "Uh, I don't know about this, but I believe scripture bears it out. Here it is. One of the problems in the church is we have thought that discipleship begins with conversion. It doesn't. It begins before conversion. Discipleship begins before conversion. If you say, I don't know about that, well, let me give you an example. In John chapter 6, Jesus had, he had fed the 5,000. The people wanted to make him king, and Jesus like leaves them. He's not going to allow them to make him king because that's not his mission. His mission was to go to the cross, not to be the king or, at that point. And so, you know, you have all these people, and they're wanting Jesus to be king. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts teaching them some really mind-blowing things like, unless you eat the Son of Man's flesh and drink his blood, you have no part of me. At that time, a lot of people probably started wanting to throw up. Because drinking blood to a Jew was an anathema. And so the crowd goes crazy. Now again, we understand what he was saying, but they didn't. And it's ironic, this is the passage, but John six sixty six says this. Many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. In other words, there were a lot of people that were following Jesus as self-attached followers. But when it came right down to that point of commitment, they weren't ready to do it. And they walked away. Now, again, I don't have time. This is a foundational message. We'll get into it next week because discipleship is a process. But it begins pre-Christian. As people see us live out our lives and see Christ through us, they start becoming curious what is going on in your life. And again, unfortunately, as a church, we've interpreted this passage to mean go make disciples means go make converts. It doesn't. It means start the process. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people today in our world, in our nation, who say they're Christians but they're not really true followers of Christ. They're just kind of attached. They just have that label. You know, there's a, there's a, a movie came out a few years ago. It's based on a book by a, about a guy named Frank Abernall. It's called Catch Me If You Can. From the age of 16 to 21, Frank Abernall posed as an attorney, a pediatrician, an airline pilot, and a lawyer. It's a very fascinating book. And there's a scene in the movie, if you've seen the movie, where Abinal's at his apartment and the FBI is on to him. And he looks out his window and he sees the FBI agents pull up. 
So he has to think fast. How's he going to get out of it? So he walks out of his room, puts on his suit, walks out of his room, and the FBI, you know, freeze. He's like, hey, guys, wait a minute. Are you guys after that Frank Abernall guy? They're like, yeah. He's like, he's down the hall. We've got some guys on it. You need to go down there really quick and find him. And he flashed a badge at him. He started ordering FBI agents around, and he walked out of the hotel, got into his car, and drove away. He posed as an FBI agent, and they bought it. It's easy to pose as a Christian, and unfortunately the church has taken this verse, go make disciples, interpreted as go make converts, so therefore if we baptize you as a baby, you're in. Hey, you know what? If you pray this special little prayer, you're in. Hey, you know what? If you just go to church enough, we'll start calling you a Christian. You call yourself a Christian, you're in. That's not a disciple. It may be the beginning of discipleship, but it's not a disciple. A disciple is a process. Discipleship is a process. The mission of the church is to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. Let me give you another example. I'm reading a book right now about Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was a famous missionary to the Burmese. He was a brilliant guy. By the age of three, his dad came home one day, and Adoniram, three years old, read a chapter out of a book to his dad. He started working riddles and arithmetic problems and all this stuff. By the time he was 16, he graduated from high school. He went to Rhode Island University, now known as Brown University. He, he tested out of his sophomore, freshman year, started as a sophomore. By the time he was 19, he graduated as the valedictorian of this college. While he was there, a friend of his, Jacob Ames, he, he, there's a couple guys he palled around with. Jacob Ames, even though Adonai had grown up in a Christian home, his father was a strict, stern minister. Even though he had grown up in a Christian home, Adoniram did not believe. And in college, his best friend Jacob Ames had convinced him that there is, if there is a God, he was a deist. If there is a God, he has kind of wound up the universe left. There's nothing more to it. That's just how it is. And Adoniram, for all intents and purposes, basically became more or less a, kind of an atheist, agnostic type of guy. After college, he moved back home. He wrote a couple textbooks on arithmetic. He decided after a while that he was going to go to New York. He wanted to be a playwright, and so he tells his mom and dad, I'm going to go to New York. His dad, of course, very stern minister, very rigid guy, said, you're not going to New York. That's an evil place. You know, you're not going to the theater and all that stuff. And they get in this big fight, and finally Adonaim had all he could take. And he says, look, I don't even believe this stuff you believe. And then his dad starts firing arguments at him. Well, Adonaim was not a valedictorian for no reason. And for every argument his dad would fire at him, Adoniram would fire back too. And by the end of the night, his dad realized he couldn't whip his son intellectually. His mama was crying, you're going to hell and all that. And Adoniram left, went to New York. Was in New York for a few weeks, realized that the theater life was not exactly what it cracked up to be. There was no way he was probably going to break into the theater, so he decided to head back. As he's traveling back, his uncle lived on the way, and his uncle was also a minister. But that night, his uncle wasn't there, but a young pastor was. And Adoniram stopped at his uncle's house to spend the night, and he really was intrigued by this young man who was basically his age, and yet he wasn't this stern, rigid guy like his father was. And Adoniram was kind of like, how can this guy believe this stuff? And so they spent hours that night talking about 
the faith, and it got Adoniram to thinking about it. He traveled on the next day. He stops at a, a, a rural place, there's a little town, a little inn there. He goes in, he says, can I spend the night? And they said, well, there's only one room we have, and it's next to a guy who is dying. And it may be kind of loud and kind of smelly. It's, it's kind of a bad situation. And Adonai said, I'm tired. Let me just go there. He goes to bed, and he's lying in bed, and he hears this guy moaning in pain. And he's seeing people or hearing people go in and out of the room all night. Finally, the next morning, he goes down to the lobby, and he said, what happened to the guy next to me last night? And they said, oh, he died. He said, oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. It sounded like he was in a lot of pain. They said, yes, he was. It was very, very difficult death. He said, do you mind telling me who his, what his name was? And they said, yeah, his name was Jacob Ames. His friend in college who had convinced him there is no God or God doesn't really care and basically started Adoniram down this cemented his unbelief, he realized he was the person in the room next to him that had died. As he rode on his horse back towards home, Adoniram said that all he could think about was, if my friend was correct and there is no God, then his life was meaningless and there was no purpose. It's over. But if my dad's right, and God is there, then he's lost. And for eternity, he will face God's wrath. And he said all he could think about as he rode that horseback was lost, lost, lost. And later, Adoniram becomes one of the greatest missionaries to the Burmese people. Here's my point. For Adoniram, I would argue that discipleship began when he met that young pastor who reflected Christ in a way that Adoniram had never seen before and started him thinking. And then as he rode on his horse, he thought, maybe there is a God who engineered all this to happen as he began to put pieces together. What is the chance that he would find his, be next door to his friend in a remote hotel on the way back from New York? What would be the chance of that? And he began to put all the pieces together and ultimately became a follower of Christ. But the discipleship process began before he made his profession of faith. Does that make sense? Again, the mission of the church is to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. Now, here's what Jesus said. Go back to the text. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, the word make disciples is a command. We are to live our lives in such a way that people are drawn to Christ and want to know about Christ. When does that happen? Well, the word go is not a command. It's a participle. It literally means as you're going. As you go throughout life, make disciples. As you go throughout life, live your life in such a way that people see Christ in you and they want to know about Christ. Because here's the deal. Discipleship precedes conversion, it leads to conversion, and then it continues after conversion. And so Jesus is saying, as you're going throughout life, church, as you're going throughout your ministry, live in such a way that people want to become followers and learn more about Christ. Now, look at the text again. Because our mission is to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ, Look at the text again. Go, therefore, and make disciples of who? All nations. Now, quite frankly, that's a little overwhelming. 
Okay, how do we do that? Well, obviously the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, which just to remind you, we're only $104 away, is one way we can do that. Maybe going on an occasional mission trip and reflecting Christ to people and hopefully leading people to come to know Christ. That's how we do it. But you know, before Jesus ascended, he gave his disciples one last command, and I think this clarifies it even more. He told them, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, at this point, they all pretty much stayed in Jerusalem. So here's what I would tell you as a church. Where does Warren Baptist Church make disciples? We start right here. This is where we start, in Warren Township. We start going to how we work. We start with our friends. We start with our families. We start living life in such a way that people want to know more. Who is this Jesus you're serving? Again, discipleship is a process. It doesn't, begin with them just be, it doesn't end with them just being curious. It needs to lead to conversion. And then after conversion, it continues. But it is a process. So, the first step for us, church, to fulfill our mission is for us to live in such a way that people see Christ in us. So my question to you is this, as we start this series. Are you reflecting Christ so that people are curious about Christ? In how you interact with people, do they see the fruit of the Spirit in your life and in my life? So that they're, if they're seeking, they're saying, what's different about you? Tell me more. Invite them to church. Share with them the gospel. Our mission is to go and make disciples. If we as a church will carry out that mission to go make followers of Christ, guess what will happen? We will become a church that is diverse, unified, impacting all people for Christ. That's what will happen. But our mission to carry that out is to turn irreligious people into fully devoted followers of Christ. Next week, we'll talk about more of the discipleship process and how Jesus did that and how we need to do that in our own church, in our own lives. But my question to you to this today is this. Are you reflecting Christ so that people are curious about Christ? Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Father, as we start unpacking this command that you gave us, your followers, to go make disciples of all nations... I pray that we'll take up the challenge in 2016 to allow Christ to live through us. We have the mind of Christ. And I pray, Father, that all of us, beginning with myself, will live our lives in such a way that that love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control will be seen in our lives. And that people will look at us and how we live and what we do and how we talk and how we respond and say, something's different. I want to know more. And so, Father, I pray for Warren Baptist Church as we go out from this place that as we are going, we will be making disciples. People who want to attach themselves to you. 
And so, Father, I pray that in 2016, Warren Baptist Church will begin to realize the vision as we carry out the mission. And I pray, Father, right now that we'll search our hearts, and if there's areas in our lives that are not reflecting Christ, that we'll repent. And, Father, this year will be different in that area. So have your will and way now, Father, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand together. If God's working on your heart and you want to have some time to pray up front, you're welcome to, or you can pray in your pew, that's fine, or your seat. But are you reflecting your life in such a way that people are curious about Christ?